time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. Um, Just wanted to point out that uh, September is uh, Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, but here we are almost at the end of October. So like most men in America, I'm a little late to be talking about this. But we are going to talk about it with uh, my guest this hour, who uh, wrote a book called Prostate Cancer, Sheep or Wolf. And he joins me now by phone, Murray Wadsworth. Murray, welcome to the show. Tom, pleasure to be speaking with you. Um, Sheep or wolf, why not man or mouse? Fair question. (laughs) Um, I like the the illustration of the the of the cover, which includes a sheep or a wolf, which represents the prostate gland uh, beneath the bladder with the ureter coming through. It is perhaps a better uh, diagram illustration than a mouse or a man. But the the basic concept is is I was in the original stages of the diagnosis and trying to find out how serious it was, and you hear many men can go a long time without any treatment. And then we get very technical on pathology reports and medical terms. I wanted to know if it was a sheep or a wolf, and it's like the wolf in sheep's clothing. And then I wanted to know if it was out of the gland or out of the barn. That's that's sort of how I put it together in my head. And if the wolf is, if you have a wolf, no matter how localized it is, you face a lot of trouble. And if you have sheep, they may be slow moving and grazing casually, but if they get out, then they're trouble as well. So that's what I came up with. And there's uh, a statistic I read that that says about one in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during their lifetime. Uh, That's about, uh, actually, that's the death rate statistic at some stage. Um, It is said that every man will have prostate cancer if he lives long enough, however long that might be. 
but yes, we see one in seven to one in nine or up early stages diagnosed with it. And and six to ten in men who are over sixty-five. Yes. No. I I think that's a very misleading statistic because we don't have a national screening program like we do with breast cancer. And when a man is found to have prostate cancer, he's already had it for a while. So if all men were diagnosed, we would find that that age would lower. The other thing that we see in all of the data is that many of the men that we call older, and I'm 63 now, so I don't consider myself young, um, are found to have a, a low case of prostate cancer, a low-risk case. It's almost an incidental finding as they're dealing with other health issues. And that statistic raises the average age. If that those numbers were eliminated from the statistics, the average age of the life-threatening disease would lower even more. So it's really a middle-aged man's disease, in my opinion, which is part of what drove me to, to write a book about it because I consider myself young. And had I properly screened, I would probably not be at the risk I'm at now. Well, Murray, we're the same age, so I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, the you mentioned that we don't have a national screening program the way we do for breast cancer. Why not? It's a really interesting question, um, and and I've studied it. I studied it as part of the research for the book. I think, from everything I can gather because we think that this is an old man's disease and that it's okay for over 30,000 American old men to die from prostate cancer. That's what I think. If we compare it to breast cancer, we're all greatly sensitive to a 35-year-old mother that is found to have a deadly breast cancer. That alarms us. But perhaps if a 69-year-old grandpa gets prostate cancer and dies in a few years, we're not concerned because he was old. Uh, I also think part of it is the challenges of this disease. There is a concern for overdiagnosis, and it's probably been the case. There's a concern for side effects. So we seem to, and then there's a concern, I should say, at the, the screening level as well, misunderstanding, misinformation about the blood test we take or the physical exam. So I think the American Neurological Association, the AMA, and each of us men sort of just have our heads down in the sands a little bit about this. Well, I was going to bring that. 30, I wasn't expecting uh, such a harsh view of um, Americans and, and uh, the way we look at this particular disease. I, I was thinking maybe it was just uh, women are, are maybe better about going to the doctor than men are. <laughs> Well, they, they they might be, but, you know, they're they're the child bearers, and so they have other things to be concerned with when they're younger. Uh, and we men tend to be strong and powerful, um, and we think we can slay dragons and tigers. So there's truth to that. But imagine if there were the same marketing campaigns to screen for prostate cancer as there is for breast cancer. And the death rate is about the same between men and women. It sits around thirty to 33,000 a year in the United States. And then I want to say, who wants to die from cancer no matter what form it is? It is and I, I... Go ahead, Murray. 
Uh, and I think the 30,000 plus men a year that die from this disease, if they could have a do-over, I think they'd take it. Um, are there are there warning signs? Are there there things, uh, symptoms that that men could maybe be educated to be more aware of, and uh, and be more likely to request a screening? There are there are symptom wise, generally speaking, as I understand it, no. Once you have the symptoms of cancer and this type of cancer, it's going to be a progressed cancer. So you're well beyond screening. You're well beyond an attempt to cure yourself of the disease. Um, the, the the two tests that we have, the screening test we have, are the PSA blood test, which gets a lot of negative comments, and then the physical exam, which none of us really want to sign up for, but. Uh, we tend to put our women through a lot of physical exams that they're maybe not happy with. So I think the men can, can take it. But the physical exam tends to not be very helpful. It's the blood test that's beneficial right now. There, there's a lot of good readings about new tests that are coming along, perhaps even a urine test. It, but that's down the road still. So right now it's primarily the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen blood test. Well, we get, uh, you know, as Americans, uh, anybody that makes a trip to the doctor at some point is going to have blood drawn for something. Why, why isn't that, why aren't those blood tests screened for that as well? Uh, there is a lot of information, and that's part of what got me off track during my early screening, that the PSA test, the blood test leads to overdiagnosis, overtreatment, and unnecessary biopsies. And it's considered inaccurate by many doctors. As I learned about it, what is internationally recognized is that three out of four of what we call elevated PSAs, based on a standard range, so three out of four that are elevated are not cancer. I say that's great news. The key is to find the one in four that is cancer. Um, and then occasionally men with this disease do not reflect it in a, in a blood test result. So it can show a low blood test score, but the man can still have cancer. So I think doctors are unclear about it. The guidance is very unclear about it. The, the federal guidelines state if you are of known risk, such as if your father had it. Well, most of us don't know if our fathers had it because they weren't looking at it when our fathers were younger men and our fathers perhaps died from other things. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's off our radar. It's off many doctors' radar because it's off the American Neurological Association's radar. How did it get on your radar, Murray? How did it... Um get if you don't mind how did how did you end up uh getting tested and diagnosed um it was because i found myself uh being a a, a single parent the sole parent and the sole financial provider for my two very young children after a after a difficult divorce and i was concerned if something happened to me who would take care of my children 
So I began doing annual, very detailed health checks with my GP. And the GP just added in prostate cancer screening. And I simply didn't know otherwise, so I said, okay. And I would get the blood test, and I would be well within the standard range, and I would get the physical exam, and that would always be clear, as they call it. So it was nothing to worry about as we looked for a variety of health concerns. And that went on for a number of years. And then I had a sudden spike in my blood test result, a frightening spike. And I was immediately sent off to a urologist and immediately given a biopsy. And I was told to prepare for the worst. And this was in my 40s, latter 40s. And that biopsy came back benign, no cancer. So that really puzzled me. So that's when I began trying to understand what went wrong here. And that's when I learned that so many elevated PSAs do not reflect cancer and they lead to unnecessary biopsies. And the physical exam was always clear. At that time, I didn't know that the physical exam misses most early stage cancers. So that all clear only means the doctor didn't feel the cancer that may in fact be present. So I went on with my normal health checks, but I became very complacent about the PSA test. And I started to skip them for a while. And then my numbers would go up and we'd be concerned and we would retest and my numbers would go down and we'd go, well, there's nothing to worry about. And I did not want that unnecessary biopsy again, which is so often written about. And this just went on for a period of years, um, and then I was found myself working over in England, and it became time to test again, and I hadn't tested in a couple of years, and my PSA was high again. So I found my way to a doctor in, in England, in London, and he did a very different physical exam than I had ever had in the U.S., and he felt what he thought was a small tumor. And he immediately referred me to an MRI, which I had never heard of in the U.S. They're, they tend to be standard over in, in much of Europe and in England. And that MRI clearly showed a tumor. And that became the diagnosis at 57, 58. I think those MRIs are becoming more common in the U.S. now. Yes, we're catching up. We're definitely catching up. Uh, not where we should be. And in a lot of the men I talk to, I encourage them to seek out what is known as a multiparic MRI. That's what I had uh, five years ago, over five years ago in England. Um, and then they're using the MRIs to guide the biopsies so that they're sure that they target the worst part of the tumor. Right. Murray, I have to take a, uh, a short break here. Can you stick around for about four minutes and, and we can talk about this some more? Very happy to. Great. My guest is uh, Murray Wadsworth. He wrote the book on uh, prostate cancer called Prostate Cancer, Sheep or Wolf. If you're listening to us on 92.1 FM, our voices radio WFOV in Flint, um, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, 
we have some messages as well, and we'll be back with more with Marie Wadsworth right Everybody's after this. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. The Spangled Dwarf in his bow tie. The infantry that don't ask why. I'm Bob Dylan. Remember those fabulous 60s? The marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artist who made them famous. You're thrilled to Society's Child by Janice Pleasant Ballet Sunday by the Monkees. What have they done to the rain by the Searchers? In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley. Silent Night, 7 o'clock news by Simon and Garfunkel. And who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War. All for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the Electric Prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian Hand People, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. 
Well, it's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something that'll tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the author of a book called Prostate Cancer, Sheep or Wolf. His name is Murray Wadsworth. He joins me by phone. Murray, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Yes, sir. Um, Just before the break, we were talking about how the, the process you went through to discovering you had it um and, and and i guess that begs the question uh were you treated how were you treated and was the treatment successful yes i was treated uh, ended up being multiple treatments uh and overall finally very successful uh, but that's its own at times ambiguous terms um, I spent about nine months trying to determine how I wanted to be treated. Um, my urologist uh, back in Texas, after I was diagnosed, I returned to Texas, immediately wanted to do surgery. And I had read so much about all the ill effects of surgery uh, that I wanted to do everything I could to avoid it. So I spent the next following months trying to find another way to treat it. But it turned out, based on the MRIs, that surgery was my best treatment attempt to be curative, to clear all the cancer. So I did finally decide, and and I had the surgery. Uh, But unfortunately, that did not clear all the cancer. Can can cancer spread from the prostate to other parts of the body? Yes, that's that is that is when it becomes deadly. Um, in my early days of meeting and consulting with many doctors and having many questions, and is this a sheep or is this a wolf? And I began to think of the prostate gland as the barnyard, uh, or or as the barn, the area around the, the prostate gland. What they call the prostate bed is the barnyard. And then the blood vessels are the high-waste metastasis. I learned this idea that prostate cancer and another example, breast cancer, actually in, in one sense never kill anyone. It's when they spread to other parts of the body. And when they spread to the distant organs, the vital organs, that's when the death occurs. But if the cancer were to stay solely in the breast, which is not a critical organ for men or women, and I came to learn men get breast cancer, um, or if the cancer stays within the prostate only and never spreads, the prostate not being a vital organ, the man will not die from that. It's when it leaves those organs that it becomes deadly. And mine indeed spread and began to spread further than anyone had thought. And then you had to, what, then, then treat the areas that it had spread to? Yes, we then treated the prostate bed, as it's called, or, or the barnyard, as I thought of it, with radiation. 
I did the standard regime of about eight weeks of radiation uh, to the prostate bed, trying to severely damage the remaining cells so that they don't duplicate and die. Um, that, as it turned out, did not work either. So after you have your prostatectomy, you go back to blood testing. Uh, the PSA, the same thing we use in screening. The numbers to rely upon are very confusing with a lot of disparate information. And then you do that again after the radiation. And I got a slight reduction only in the, in the PSA number after the radiation. So that told us that the cancer had already spread further than the, the radiation field. And can cancer spread to the prostate from other parts of the body, or does that even matter? I, I don't think that that matters. Again, the prostate gland itself is not particularly crucial. It's not important to our survival. It's, it's important to our sexual function. Um, so we can lose our prostate glands and be just fine. It's when it spreads to the bones or to other vital organs, the lungs, the kidneys, the livers, and then we'd actually die from the cancer in those other parts of our body. Um, so mine was moving through what they refer to as the pelvic region. It was in lymph nodes, moving through my body slowly, fortunately, but moving. Were you able then to eventually rid yourself of cancer? Uh, no. Um, we're now quite sure that I still have it. I came to learn that there is no medical way, no scientific way to prove all the cancer is gone. So when we hear of cures and things, the question becomes, how is it proven? Other than over many years, there was no further evidence. So my cancer had spread beyond the, the reach of the radiation. And the, the standard protocol is to do chemo and drugs, androgen deprivation drugs, hormone blocking drugs. And that was very undesirable to me. I'm in my early 60s now, 61, and those are not curative. All those treatments do is slow the cancer down. So I ended up returning back to Europe where they have further imaging, more advanced imaging than we have available in the U.S. And that imaging identified seven lymph nodes likely for cancer, pelvic lymph nodes. And I came back to the U.S. and again all the recommendations were for chemo and the hormone blocking drugs, which again were not curative. So I returned back to Europe, to Belgium, for a surgery known as salvage extended pelvic lymph node dissection, which is not available in the U.S. And that proved to be very successful. That got my PSA level down to an extremely low level, a value that I relied on that's known as less than 0.01. And I actually got to less than 0.006. And I've been holding there for several years. So that was quite encouraging that perhaps we got it all. But there's no, again, there's no equivocal proof. But in the last few months here, and I'm in the middle of monthly testing now, 
it appears my PSA number is ticking up slightly. And we don't exactly know what that means or why that is, but one possibility is that there's a very small number of cancer cells beginning uh, to grow again and, and make their presence be known. So I'm watching. I'll test every month. Some doctors would say that's too, too frequent, but I do it as a patient. And when my number, my PSA number reaches a value that I rely on, again, um, international travel permitting, I'll return to Europe for imaging. Uh, there's a thought that if I have any more remaining cancer, it's still in a couple of the pelvic lymph nodes, which we may be able to get with either another surgical procedure or with very targeted radiation. Murray, while you were going through all this and, and doing the research and learning about what you were going through, um, how did that how did that um, cause you to want to write a book about it? I found myself, Tom, with a lot of notes. And you, know, you think back to the days in school and we do all that reading and we buy textbooks and we have all those notes and then we seem to throw it all away. It seemed like a waste to me. And I, I very honestly share, I was actually very angry with the American healthcare system. I'm proud of, of this country and, and proud of all the things that we do, but very specific to prostate cancer, very unhappy because I'm likely facing death, an early death from prostate cancer if I, we did, in fact didn't get it all because otherwise I'm in good health and it could have been avoided. I believe it could have been avoided by proper screening. So I, I found myself wanting to talk to other men. And the idea one day, I was out in my RV after I was diagnosed the first with and had the surgery. I gave up work and just decided to get out in my RV. And I had carried all my notes, and it was, do I burn them in the campfire? Uh, and I actually just said, I'm going to write a book. And I made an attempt to write a book. And, you know, would the story be interesting? How could I make it interesting? And it took several years of writing and some work with some a good editor to turn it into what hopefully is a reasonable read for men to help them understand what I went through, what's different in this country, where we're behind, and what a self-directed patient can do about it. And when you were researching... Uh, Initially, you started researching because you wanted to know more about what was impacting you personally. Um, was it difficult to find resources? Did that play a role in your deciding to, to make sure there was a book out there? Um, no, it, it, it was actually quite easy. Um, I got lucky early on and found myself to an annual publication that was put out by a university and still is, that was initially very helpful to me understanding things. Um, but I was already aware of some of the disparities in what do we do with PSA numbers and, and who should we screen and how do we treat. So I just began using the libraries and, and, and web searches. And that got very confusing and very, very overwhelming. And I was uh, 
learning to, to look for what are called peer review medical papers. And when a medical paper is published in a well-known journal, it will state the peer-to-peer peer -peer reviews, who's done the reviews, who's validated the findings. And that was the research I focused on. So if I saw a newspaper article or a magazine article or heard something on the radio by a reporter, I would skip that information and look for the source. And if I could find the peer-reviewed source article, that is what I would read. They're medically oriented, but, a, but a, a reasonably good reader can find their way to the information that they need. And that's how I did it. And I, uh, I referenced about 25 of the papers that I used in the book. And I said, these are my sources. Um, offering them as suggestions to men to say, either look at the ones I used or find other ones that you find more interesting uh, or you prefer to rely on. It wasn't as difficult as one thinks. And, and yet, with all the research you did and all of the testing that went on, it it sounds as though it were it was somewhat difficult to get diagnosed and treated, even with um, a lot of uh, early testing. Yes. Um, Yes, it was. Um, um, when my long-established urologist, after we, the cancer was found in England and I had the MRI, and he said, you should have surgery next week, I raised questions. And those were not particularly well-received. And as I went from one doctor to another seeking opinions of different treatment methods, there was a pushback. And when I began to talk about the use of MRIs and the imaging that I had done in Europe, most American doctors weren't experienced with that. And I found these contradictions. Uh, there were two doctors in England that I had gone to for treatment. One was no, uh, a technique known as HIFU that is now becoming available in the U.S. It was not available in the U.S. as recently as four or five years ago. And I was seeing that doctor as a private patient, which meant I would have paid him personally. And he told me not to use his method. He said that there wasn't enough margin clearance around the tumor for his radiation method. And I, I saw another radiation specialist over there, and he gave me the same answer. Yet doctors in the U.S. said that they would do these things. So it became really confusing. And I, I write about it. I came up with this concept that I was a patient detective and a patient scientist <laughs> and I say and I say patient because I'm not a doctor and I never thought of myself as a doctor and I would never diagnose myself and I would never decide what to do on my own I'm just a patient but I had to find information I had to dig and dig and and challenge doctors and it's not that they're wrong but they have their perspectives and one of the most challenging things about prostate cancer, it's a good news, bad news story, is we've got six, seven, eight, or nine very well-proven treatment methods to choose from. So which one do you use? And then, of course, in America, we have so much marketing on medicine. See the best doctors. Go to the best cancer centers. Only do these doctors. And that's frightening because we all can't get to them. 
So you have to then sell or settle for someone that's less than number one in the country. And what do you do with that information as a patient? And now that you have the book, what are you recommending that men should do? Um, is there a, a, a course of um, regular screening and testing that um, can, can help men maybe avoid the uncertainty that you experienced? Uh, yes, I, 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 I shied away in the book from making recommendations, as, for I am just a patient. Um, what I share is my experiences, and I try to present a reference point. So the first two chapters are about screening. The first one I titled, The Screen Conundrum. Here's all the information that says screen and don't screen and why and how I handled the confusing part of it. And the second one, how screening failed me, I go through how despite screening, despite the PSA test, I had a benign biopsy, I still had cancer, and I was graphing my PSA results after the fact. And it was the graphs that actually showed the cancer was growing as my PSA went up and down. Then... I spend some time talking about the imaging. As you mentioned earlier, Tom, it's just beginning to happen in the U.S. It's standard practice in Europe and much earlier stages than we do here in the U.S. And that was pivotal in my treatment decisions and my very favorable outcome. If I still have the cancer, we've certainly sent it back many, many years or extended my life many years without having to take some, some chemo or some of these other harsher drugs. And so I, I spend time on how I went through a lot of different treatment consultations with different doctors and different cancer centers, what they told me, and how I made my decisions. And what I chose is not a path or a treatment method that I recommend to anyone else. I just say, here's how I got there. As I mentioned earlier, I tried not to have cancer or surgery, I should say, because of all the fears. And surgery is what I ended up having. Now, how did I do that? Well, I learned that it was my best chance because of where my tumor was located and its particular size and shape as shown on the MRIs. And so I hope that men with that will say, okay, there's a lot of treatment methods. Maybe this imaging sounds good if they think it does. And so they seek out the imaging. And you have to seek it out. You have to ask for it. You have to argue with your insurance companies to get it. Um, some of the doctors are not familiar with it, and let that help make the treatment decision. And then I also learned, oddly, again, over in England about something called genomic testing, which is now approved in the U.S., and that gives you a risk factor of your cancer. Um, what would and you... my genomic testing... Go ahead. You said you were um, disappointed or upset with the the American healthcare system as you went through this process and and the more you researched it what would you what would you have the system do differently going forward very good question um, I would have screening for prostate cancer be as supported as promoted and as common as it is for breast cancer and as it is for colon cancer, you know, we, we all seem to get colon cancer screening, whether we think we need it or want it, right? And the insurance companies encourage it. 
because it so that would be number one let's just get on with screening let's understand the blood test isn't perfect but we know how to handle the results and if there's any doubt or any concern we do imaging as I know it, it's multi-parametric MRI. It will probably get better and there'll be something to do down the road that we don't have today. But then do imaging. And to use imaging before a treatment decision is made. The other thing that I would like to see, and this is, this is what I learned that they do in Europe for a disease such as prostate cancer, and they do it as well for breast cancer, is that a team of doctors from each of the treatment disciplines meet to discuss the individual patient's case. And the team makes a recommendation for a particular treatment. Here, when we go see a doctor that does one type of radiation or another or may do surgery, they're very prone to their own treatment method, and that's what they promote to us. And there has to be a financial incentive for them, and, and I understand that. But I don't know that it's always in the best interest of the patient. So I, specifically for prostate cancer, would like to see doctors of four or five different disciplines look at the data, look at the MRIs, look at the genomic testing, and say, this would be our first and second recommendation for the patient. Well, it's, um, it's an important subject to talk about, Murray, and I appreciate you spending this time with me this morning. The name of the book is Cancer, Sheep, or Wolf by Murray Wadsworth. Um, Murray, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Um, do you have a website, or are there resources that you would recommend? Obviously, the book is a great place to start, but uh, are there some of these other resources or, or websites that you would encourage people who want to know more to research? Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, the, the book that I found most useful for me, and it's a guide, it's known as Prostate Disorders, Your Annual Guide to Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment. It's now, I believe, from the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, it previously was from Hopkins. So again, that's the Prostate Disorders, Your Annual Guide to Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment. That was my go-to book um, that I would read. And I bought a new one every year, and I still do. Um, my own website um, is sheeperwolfcancer.com. That links to a, face, a Facebook page that I have. And on my Facebook page, known again as Prostate Cancer Sheep or Wolf, I provide a lot of this information. Um, I, give a lot of, I give all the information away in Facebook and Facebook groups. Uh, and I give the book away, frankly, to anyone that asks me for it. Um, I want men to have the information. I, I, I face the risk that I'll die from this disease unless something else gets me first, which is often said about it. Um, there are hundreds of books on the subject, hundreds, and that confused me as well, um, which may have ultimately helped lead to why I, I tried to offer mine up uh, as just a, a, a patient's 
um, scientific way of looking at it. Well, Murray, thanks so for spending. Books. Thank you so much for spending this time and sharing your story with us today. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. All right, take care. That was Murray Wadsworth. He's the author of uh, a book that is uh, called Prostate Cancer, Sheep, or Wolf. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. 
we haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you. Could you be happy if your name were This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The doctor was looking at the x-ray and I asked him, what do you see? And he kept on looking at the x-ray as he said in French to me, I see bones, I see gizzards and bones, and a few kidney stones. Among the lovely bones I see hips And fourteen paper clips Three asparagus tips Among the lovely bones I see things in your peritoneum That belong in the British I see your spine And your spine looks divine It's exactly like mine Now doesn't that seem strange? And in case You use pay telephones There's two dollars in change Among your lovely bones Oh, hello there, nurse Come over here and look at this x-ray It's really remarkable Isn't the lumbar vertebrae supposed to be connected to the clavicle? Well, I know, but it's got tape Hey, look what's in there Look at that, it's a stamp it's a 1922 McKinley Ultramarine Blue with imperfect perforations. I've got to get that out and put it in my collection. Look in there, there's printing. What does it say in there? U.S. Certified Grade A. Look at this, it's fascinating. See those little round things? You know what those are? Those are M&M's. Those people are right. They don't melt.
This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Oh, 
Some might call it strange But I ain't never had a patient To complain I tighten it up a little bit here And I touch it up a little bit there Sometimes I'm so involved I have to come up and Cause I'm your, your root doctor In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus And if you got a better cough in your arm And if you got a better... <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run But half the docs were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say If you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away Super damn important that we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation It's super damn important that we practice isolation If we don't do it then we're all gonna die If we don't do it then we're all gonna die And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised Oh super bad transmittable contagious awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine the last until July A super bad transmittable Super bad transmittable Contagious Awful Virus Super bad transmittable Contagious Awful Virus Old Fashioned Radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com The 
Alexander Zajic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 